Polarization is tearing our world apart. Many of us feel isolated and unable to speak our minds even to our friends and family. This is Effective Conversations with Yale Feiner, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion. Unity is 54 years old, land artist, and an experienced first responder. After a near-death experience 15 years ago, he understood how life is a temporal journey. Deciding to dedicate himself to serving the highest good for his community, going to Ferry Creek seems an easy foregone decision. Unity's time at Ferry Creek Blockade was invested in trying to co-create safer and more environmentally respectful space for people. He shares his personal experience with the RCMP's violence and questionable tactics. So I understand you've heard some of the other episodes in the Ferry Creek series. What made you listen to them? I think, like light, there is a spectrum. And if we can't see outside of the narrow spectrum of our own particular color, we will never understand the full fullness of light. So I, I haven't listened to all the podcasts yet, but I listened to enough that it gave me an understanding outside of the spectrum that I contributed. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to hear the behind the scenes of some people that I didn't know their story because I didn't have time. Yeah. At the, mm-hmm. I missed out on a lot of the social components that I wish in more peaceful times I would have been able to be part of. So by hearing these podcasts, all these people so far that I see in the list, I know them. Some of them I know better than others. Some of them I had different stories about. So when I listen to them all, I'll get to know something about them that I've wanted to know, whether it's mm. good or bad. It doesn't really matter. It's more about actually getting to know what someone's experience was. And I think this is the opportunity because when else would we? Unless we randomly met on a street and went in for a coffee, I'm never going to get the opportunity to have a full hour and a half of <laughs> cheering someone in a neutral situation to be able to speak from their heart. What a novel opportunity. I think it's beautiful. Okay, that's great. And I'm so happy that you could connect uh, with others through the podcast, which is really cool. I didn't think about that. <laughs> Many people mentioned you. And when they talked on their podcast, uh, some people told me you have to speak with Unity. So here we are. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about your involvement in the movement. I guess to answer that question, I have to be careful. Um, I mean that only in the sense that obviously there are legal laws um, and in the right of being in civil disobedience, there are certain things that you're allowed to do and certain things that stretch what you're supposedly allowed to do. Mm-hmm. So... Let's just say that I was in charge of, well, I wouldn't say in charge. There was an empty hole, and I stepped into that empty hole and filled it with myself, and I did the things that were on the edge. But on the positive side, um, the things that I can talk about, because I've been trained in fire suppression, first aid, and a variety of other things, so safety was highly important to me safety of people, safety of the forest, safety of the animals. 
So a, a lot of what I did in my mind was just bringing my skill set to where it was seemingly needed. And mm-hmm. when others said to talk to me, I think that was because of when I came into the movement, I was, at one point, there was only 10 to 12 people there. And they had, a bunch of other people had gone off to try and start other camps. So there was an empty hole for leadership. And mm. I just felt yeah. it was important that someone had to step in because no one, not that I was better or worse than anyone else, but I was definitely, um, I'm 54 years old. So as a result, I feel that my privilege of both age and who I am is a responsibility to step up and in. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I coined creating a beautiful blockade. So it was using both art and and the features of the land. And then yeah. and then when the forest season shifted to the high heat, then based on I had previously worked for the Ministry of Forestry as fire suppression so i took that skill set in to make sure that we were as protected as possible we got equipment in and trained people and um, took care of that as well okay cool that's very important so i was talking with police officer yesterday and i was trying to understand what is peaceful protest uh, in which in my mind uh, at least the police doesn't use force And violence uh, and in fairy Creek it uses it pretty <laughs> pretty much a lot so as far as at the other speakers I talk with in the podcast um, their perspective was this is unceded territory this is a native land and the police and the industry have no legal rights to be on this land but from the government perspective or from the police perspective this is a crowd land it belongs to the queen and And it's not allowed uh, to block the way for the industry and the industry till Jones won the injunction. So I wonder how you see that. And is it a peaceful protest? Uh, was something that you did was illegal there? Uh, my experience and from talking to multiple lawyers and everything, almost everything that we did at Furry Creek was legal. We have an absolute legal right for civil disobedience to... Uh, be it on Crown land to exercise our rights as in disagreement with our governmental structures and that we are legally allowed to do. Uh, since I happen to be there at pre-injunction, I mm-hmm. inform myself as best I can on all of our legal rights and of course there's always more that I could miss. but at no point is walking as a group of people singing, illegal we are not supposed to block industry and at the times that these particular like the pepper spray incident mm-hmm. as well as the other violences that occurred none of those times were we blocking industry industry was not there to do work at that time so the enforcement was actually in the way I see it as illegal there's a straddle a gray zone which is well perhaps industry isn't going to come to work if there's a big group of people in the way but in essence we're not blocking industry then 
So is it the RCMP's right to pepper spray a bunch of people that for their own self-protection, because of the incredible violence that the RCMP did, decided to then throng together in groups in order to not be dragged out by legs or were punched or violated in any other number of ways, I think any sane person would probably look for a friend or multiple friends to get close to for their own protection. So I, I, I don't know if you've interviewed an RCMP officer and they seem to, unfortunately, I've heard far too many lies from the police. In fact, there's a number of media individuals that were hired, uh, Manson, like Mance, I can't remember his name, but a constable that was specifically, he said he came out of retirement for Ferry Creek and his intent was to put the RCMP's publicity out there in a neutral and positive way. And almost everything I heard from his mouth unfortunately happened to be lies in time. At first, I believed mm -hmm. him, started investigating it, and then noticed that it was just such a corrupt system of counter-propaganda in allegiance with a governmental structure that then tried to protect its own self-interests in promoting violence within an industry against people who had the actual right to stand in protest. I never heard of any protester committing a direct act of violence. I did hear about a couple people, and I saw one video, of someone reacting when they were being violated and abused. So mm -hmm. that's a hard one to say. So we don't have the right for self-protection. And at no point did they brutalize any RCMP officer. In no way can I say the reverse. The police definitely brutalized us. And, yeah, I've got my own personal history there. And it's less important than the BIPOC and the Indigenous were absolutely targeted. And as a result, we would create structures of people around to try and protect as best we could. So hopefully that answers that question. Yes, so that's that's really good. Yes, so you're saying that that there was no violence from the protesters. Um, but I'm still finding it hard to believe or to accept that the RCMP will use so much violence for no threat or no good reason. Can you paint me a picture of how does it look like? Like you're sitting, you're singing, you're playing drums. You are just sleeping in your tent, and then this like violence police just coming, raging at you, raiding everything. How did it look? Well, it's such a a huge piece of history, so I can't say that like that would be one instance, perhaps that maybe we and they seem to have a tendency whenever we're doing ceremony, so there's a lot of cultures there, but we're on patch it at and did it at territory. So as a result, we were really trying to do the right thing for the environment that we were standing on. So when we would, and I did notice this tendency when we were doing ceremony, 
that's seemingly when the RCMP would come in in throngs. Whether it was coincidence, it seemed to happen far too many times to be a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So there's something interesting there that I would love to know uh, what the training procedure is for RCMP. Uh, other times, the the yeah the drumming would only typically go along with ceremony or in the case where the RCMP are actually coming in in, in large numbers and they're coming to the main camps, well, we would stand as a presence to do our civil disobedience, to stand mm -hmm. at the front in order to then demonstrate again that it is a no, that we need this message to get to the government who was derelict and still continues to be derelict on duty and express that this is what was promised in the uh, pre-election promises of John Horgan, that our no is a statement to hold him accountable, as well as the NDP government, as well as the federal government, in following through on stopping the climate change in the only way that we civilly could. And as peaceful protesters, the the opposite occurred when being in the middle of nowhere, being Ferry Creek, we weren't surrounded by citizens of Victoria, Vancouver. We didn't have media on us 24-7. So that seemingly allowed the RCMP to create exclusion lines so they could block out media, so they could come in and then transgress our civil rights. Yeah. So do you say that the police came to the camp not to allow, not to move you away uh, from the road so the logger can pass just because they didn't like you being there, even if it didn't uh, bother anyone? If, if one reads the injunction, uh, the injunction says that we had the right to be out there. We had the right to protest. We had the right to do everything that we did, technically, uh, except for block industry. Well, industry wasn't there. So industry wasn't there. So why do you do blockade? Not, not at the not at the beginning. We were there to protect the trees. We we're there to block to be uh, forthcoming to obviously block industry from coming from going up and mm -hmm. cutting down the old growth, which they still went up and did because eventually. And there is the issue is that you're talking to someone who is there a long time. So the storyline of what started at the blockade. Mm -hmm. and what ended at the blockade actually changes. So I'm usually, right now, I'm answering the questions more towards the late, middle, and end. At the beginning, there were, were no RCMP. We mm -hmm. had a huge gap of time after the injunction to then prepare for the possibility of, of the RCMP coming. And every single day, we always thought the RCMP were coming, either that or industry. And we did have industry come in a number of times and, and others that we couldn't figure out who they were, but they would come in and unfortunately they would terrorize. They would come in, knock over things that had been constructed. They would uh, scream, like a couple of times they would come in in the middle of the night and either 
at one time they threw rocks at people's vehicles. Uh, people were injured who had rocks thrown through, hitting them. Uh, we had five vehicles damaged that way. We had a number of things torn apart in the middle of the night. And as a result, for our own defense and our own protection, we had to create our own gating system at the very front in order to protect ourselves from these random acts of violence. I was there from pre-injunction. I wasn't one of the, I hear there's like 30 or 35 people that stood up on top of the mountain, saw Ferry Creek, the old growth, and understood what was at risk. Mm-hmm. I wasn't part of those. I came, like I said, pre-injunction. Okay. Yeah. So say more about how they, how they came, what, what you realized. If you had a chance to talk with them or to, to try to, to understand why they're so violent with you? From, from my experience, it was a slow-growing, escalating procedure uh, about midway through my time there. Uh, they were coming in small groups called the DLT. So you've often heard of the greens. The greens were quite violent. Well, they were intermixed. The blue, blue and, the, and greens were violent. But they had this liaison team called the DLT, and they were the Greys. And the Greys came in, and they would explain that they were there and going to enforce the injunction at some point. And uh, they were hit or miss. The interesting thing is that they came in soft to begin with, but it seemed to be a strategy and sure enough their strategy seemed to be play good cop for a while try to build relationship in order to use that against us later and eventually mm-hmm. they did that time and again and as the movement went on we started to notice those that were the, what I would call the good officers the ones that seemed to have heart they slowly extricated themselves from being at Ferry Creek. And as, t- as the movement got closer to the complete fall of HQ and then all of the protection of the land defending and then all the pepper spraying and all the incredible violence is because most of the great and good officers actually left. They couldn't, it seemed to be, we heard rumor of some officers saying, that they wouldn't be back because they couldn't agree with what the, their other officers were doing. That's when mm. the violence started to increase because there were less good officers there. And I really don't like using good or bad. Let's just say those that didn't care stayed. And from what we heard uh, a number of times, both on camera and off camera, the ones that stayed, were there because they were bragging about that it was going to get them a new truck or it was going to get them uh, a renovation or a trip. What is that, some kind of a, bo- a bonus from, from the police? Well, the, the police were being paid very well from taxpayer money. And they themselves were bragging to each other. Like I overheard it once. I know a number of other people came up to me and, and shared multiple times the different versions that they heard from other officers 
bragging about the money that they were making. This is taxpayer money. Like to put yourself into uh, as they, I can't say that they call it a stressful situation or whatever it is. It just seems to be part of their infrastructure of how they get paid. And again, I got to be careful not to speak into something I don't know. I can only speak of the knowledge I do have. And this is what I've heard from the officers themselves. And it would be a great thing to actually investigate, to have someone um, who actually could go behind the scenes and see why they were bragging about that and how they got paid so much for committing violence against peaceful citizens. Right. So back to the DLT liaison team. They were asking questions, building relationship, and then they were gone. How did they build relationship and how did they use it against you? So to be clear, the DLT never left. They were always there. It was the officers that shifted. So mm-hmm. they had a strategy. The good, the good, again, I hate to use that word. The Compassionate officers, or caring? Yeah. Yes, I like that. I prefer that. The compassionate and caring officers understood that they couldn't be there watching the violence that was happening to the citizens that were doing their civil disobedience. So they, they slowly, through attrition, left. And mm-hmm. the grays, the blues, and the greens were always there. They were just different people fulfilling those roles. And as a result, the, the grays when they would get pieces of information, including at certain point, they would use intimidation. I was arrested twice and both, mm-hmm. both times, one of them being uh, a catch and release, which is an illegal thing for them to do. They actually mm-hmm. asked me not, not what my name was. They didn't say, they said I was under arrest, but they didn't say for what. And then they didn't ask for my actual legal name. They asked me for... my camp name just enough that they could then pick me up as well as about 12 others at that particular occasion, throw us in a paddy wagon, bring us to the, technically the middle of nowhere, drop us off. And then our own people had to come find us and pick us up. So, well, uh, the other time the tra- charges were fortunately dropped and that is because they physically targeted myself and, And a couple other people crossed the exclusion line, pulled me beyond it, and then called it obstruction. So those are the types What of things inc- that... What is inclusion line? So there was a line that if we crossed it, we would be under arrest, according to them. Even mm-hmm. though, again, we had the, in the injunction, we had the full, complete right of the, of the law. To be on that road but they created an artificial line that we were supposedly in the sand with a piece of yellow ribbon tape all the time that we were not supposed to cross and if we did they would make up that we were in uh, either obstructing their ability to do their job even though the technical logging was multiple kilometers away and we're from seven to eight kilometers away or more for the road building. So the, that's one side of one part of the conversation. 
but how they would use the information, um, trying to build up towards that. Then when they found out my legal name after the second arrest, they would come up and they would intimidate by then using that instead of addressing us as our camp names. Uh, mm. They would start to then use other pieces of information they have to, as far as I could tell, again, intimidate, instill fear, uh, to excite anger or something to get us off balance in order to then use that again against us. And and the number of examples are, are too many. How do you deal with that? What do you do? How do you, um, how do you well, stay there with, with this? Like, Well, how do you... The question is actually the reverse. How do you not stay there? When you know what's at stake in this world and how corrupt the system is, privilege is a responsibility. And to not be there, to not stand for the indigenous, to not stand for the animals and the trees and for all of society, that's the criminal to me. So that's how I could stay there. Yeah. That's how many people stayed there. They understood that this is a tipping point for us as an entire planet and and our physical bodies, though brutalized, a lot of us come out of that with PTSD, come out with severe trauma, but we know it's just, and I hate to put it into a different context, but it, in the context I'm about to put it into is obviously the thing that's going Russia? on right now is you, you yeah ukraine and russia so yeah yeah we for, could do that for us for us to stand back and do nothing well and i hate to call it evil because i believe every action is created out of love but sometimes it's the love of money that creates action mm-hmm. but it, there's there needs to be a planetary stand against greed for everyone's need. And until that happens, then things will only get worse. So and how do you connect point, it with Russia, that, that uh, Russia wants the resource of Ukraine? This is how you see it? I definitely see it as uh, power, that, that right now we have a system that is corrupted by greed and has been ever since King's queens, maharajas, anything that put a hierarchy of someone above someone else until we have something perhaps like a maximum wage where there can't be a system that puts anyone above anyone else, then there will always be these type of fights. There will always be the peaceful in the masses standing against the Goliaths. And until as well, the militia, stand against perhaps other militia and hopefully en- enroll everyone into understanding that no one should have the right to command another person to do violence to another person, then we will duplicate this history again and again. I personally believe that we have a, a possibility because the number of beings on this planet, we can stop stop the system from continuing on the way it is and absolutely demand 
that the system change. But until we have enough of a tipping point, then people will be hurt at Ferry Creek. Until we have, ten, if there were 10,000 people out there, there would have been no possibility for the police to have done any anything that they did do. The government right. would have to change. And it's a small number of, of people, but it's a very remote region. So understandably, it was a huge outlay of cost of people's lives, both time as well as their own personal money. No one out there was ever paid. So all of us went out of pocket. Meanwhile, taxpayers are paying the police time, time yeah. and a half, double time. Uh, industry is continually getting subsidized to, from what I hear, a million dollars a day, uh, the logging industry, in order to actually continue uh, destroying the forests. So until, again, the mass of population on this planet not only just wakes up to the fear, but wakes up to their own empowerment, that we actually have the ability to tip the scales if only we unite then again, this violence will just perpetuate. And Russia and Ukraine is a good example. In my opinion, they're coming in because they need the, it's not need the resource. Their greed indicates mm-hmm. that they can't let it slip away. And out of fear, I don't want to get into that one because that one I want to continue to do more research on. But it's fairly obvious that it's greed, greed and power. Okay, so, so your name is Unity and you're talking about we, we need to be united. How do, how do we do that in a better way? How do we get united that we have the, the industry on our side and, and more people to wake up to, to see what's happening in the world? Why people are not waking up? I think from those people that I see that stay in the comfort of the system that keeps them alive that is kind of a self-perceived life support that there's too much fear out there that they aren't empowered that to actually change the status quo would mean as far as i can tell a fear of their own death Mm -hmm. i think for unity to actually happen people have to see the that what happens to my neighbor is just as important what as what happens to myself and that nothing exists without it being interconnected with all beings and i unfortunately believe that it's like there's this movie called logan's run um, the system seems to have to want to collapse in order to then break people out of the bubble of and i am got to be careful not to be a hypocrite because I do watch Netflix a lot to pacify mm-hmm. my my issues of, of what I've come back out of for a creek with. Yeah. So there's a complacency and a sleepiness through both the entertainment industry as well as if you're given all your needs, just enough of them to stay alive and you're looking for your retirement plan why would you want to disrupt that? So I had this unfortunate belief that probably things are going to have to get a lot worse before 
people are willing to take action. I think people are generally awake. They're just awake in fear. Hmm. They're awake to what's going on, but they aren't willing to do something about it because either it's someone else's problem in their mind or they're too afraid and they believe they're under-resourced to actually do something about it. And I actually believe that we are all, we all have a voice and we all have this ability if we were to gather together to just stand on the ledge and not let the politicians in until they understand they too are one. And it's not even the politicians, honestly, it's, it's who's mm-hmm. behind the politicians. It's the big word that's being put around right now is the oligarchy and it's been there for a long time. And it is mm-hmm. those that are behind the puppetry, those that are yeah, yeah. moving, the, moving the players. And and Fairy Creek is such a microcosm, cosm of such a bigger issue going on. And what we were trying to do there at Fairy Creek was actually create a community. We were building through a lot of trauma, a lot of people coming in with their own fears of each other in the middle of what was technically a war. We had helicopters flying over daily, multiple times. We had police coming in from the sides. We had, and those were the greens. We had terror locals coming in and vandalizing. So every day there was always something that incited fear. So I think even though I've heard some of the other podcasts and the amount of highlighting of the internal conflict Mm -hmm. i i don't want to say we did well but i'm saying under the circumstances i'm surprised how well we did considering that everyone's trauma was heightened every personal ancestor was there and all the traumas through that and yet we were still working in the best way we could to watch out for each other so and that's another micro of a bigger a bigger systemic problem where we don't look at mental health as something that we invest in that's another thing between the difference between greed and need a society mm-hmm. that's based on need would actually take care of those that are in the worst of situations yeah if our society was not based on greed and giving everything upstream to the wealthy and instead was based on a society of distributing needs. And I'm not talking about communism. I'm just talking about that there is no way that the oligarchy will ever exist because it's just illegal for them to have billions of dollars. No one needs billions of dollars. Then we would easily be able to take care of mental health issues, lack of connection, belonging. We would... uh, have an education system that is tailored very different than the one that it is now, instead of creating people to jump into the slavery of a workforce, we would actually be looking at what is the gift of someone to bring into this world, that unique soul and offer them the possibility of stepping into that. It would, it would, our society would shift so radically i can't even imagine i wouldn't want to call it utopia it would probably have its own underbelly of dystopia but Mm -hmm. right now we're headed as far as i can tell towards a 
a darker dystopia, which may be the springboard and the seesaw to something better. But again, there's a pivot point that will take the awakening of it of a certain percentile, which I was taught, it only takes a certain percent. And someone told me it was like five to 7% of a population to stand. And it could have been even less than that. It could have been three to five, but I'd rather Mm -hmm. err on the side of five to seven. If that percentage of the people of a region and that region being so-called Canada or U.S. or wherever, it would be enough to, to stop things from continuing on because enough others would then start to investigate it, educate themselves, and it would become a feedback loop. So that's something that I believe in, and I put my energy towards to be one of, and so many of the people I met out there come from that place of heart. But unfortunately, the, the system is against us actually getting there. So it's going to take probably season number two or season number three or season yeah. number four. I, I want to ask you, um, what helped you reach those conclusion of not, not stop in the comfort? Because so many people stopping in the comfort, like this is my comfort zone and they're relating to themselves. What helped you to, to overcome this mindset and, and the fear? That goes into my, my personal story as opposed to the systemic outside my world story. About 15 years ago, I had a near-death experience. And previous to that, I was ever since very young, I was always questioning what what is the meaning of life. So I uh, started pursuing every thread I could to better understand what is what is sacred, what is what's worth, if anything, fighting for. And uh, beauty, beauty seemed to be a pretty good benchmark to look towards. Nature seemed to respond, but the near-death experience pivoted things where it stripped my identity enough that I could understand that a lot of the constructs, like the, I guess the movie The Matrix, that were mm-hmm. plugged in, are there to keep us asleep and to believe in the identities that we are born with and not the ones that are actually behind the facade. And as a result of that, then I see my life as a temporal journey. And should I honestly thought for a while that I could end up dying out at Ferry Creek with some of the hard blocks that were being constructed that if locked into them, I understood that it could be the end of me and that, again, that would be okay. It wasn't ideal. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to do that to my friends and family and nor to the blockade, but I see behind the facade of even this character who goes by the code name Unity. He's, mm-hmm. he's just playing his part and but behind that, there's a consciousness that, from my experience, that exists beyond death, because I feel I've been there and I've come back. So I, yeah. I, I just step into the void that is the now and serve where, like I believe many others do, they just serve where they see there is a need. 
And I wish that the police would understand that, that they too could be a pivot point for change. They have the choice. They are not locked in a construct, even though they've had to make pledges to corporations technically, uh, even though their pledge was to the government, it's to the facade behind that, that they too could make a choice at pivotal moments and step onto the side of what is humanity and, and not greed. Yeah, I, or I the wish, comfort. Yeah, well, there is, but there will be no comfort eventually if we continue at the rate we're going. It's such a small amount of human history left before there is a collapse Yeah, that all these comforts that we've gotten out of the oil industry and even if we pivot to greener sources of energy our rate of resource extraction is causing the signs are already there the collapse has already begun yeah. and we can, we can turn it around uh, China is a good example they planted so many trees in a couple years time because they had the population base to do it and the intent and the willpower and the resources and now there are forests slowly starting and land that was desert is being reclaimed so i do believe we have the capability but that's before environmental collapse happens before then the glaciers melt to the point of non-existence before torrential downpours erode our soil base so if we have enough people in the enough amount of time, we could make a different type of world. And that's why my life on this planet is so temporary. It doesn't really matter. The expansion of our consciousness to be able to step into the next era of humanity, which hopefully looks like something more inclusive that also includes the natural world, I think is, is truly a remarkable pivot point that could cause an incredible celebration of life. But right now it's a celebration of life for the, unfortunately on the death side, it's a, it's a facade of, yeah, let's celebrate that we have cars that we can freely drive around with. And my, you know, I don't want to get on too much more of a soapbox. So you were always uh, asking questions uh, about the meaning of life and what's important and what's important to fight for. And were you had the revelation moment, it's very quick, or um, your decolonization work that you did there, um, was there anything profound or important mentioning that happened to you at Ferry Creek? Uh, if we're talking about decolonization, we're talking about in relation to, well, there's a lot in that word. So I'll just speak to when I, I was born you know, in Lekwungen territory and raised on the island in the Malahat and Cowitzen regions. So I, from a very, very early age, I saw Vancouver Island. Uh, so Lekwungen meaning Victoria. I was born in Victoria and raised up in the Couchin Valley. And it, from a very early age, there was just something not right. It, it didn't understand it because I was so young, but I could see that there was a two-tier system because at that time, all I knew was there were white people and there were indigenous. 
mm-hmm. and and from everything I could see, there was like I didn't have a word racism back then. Mm-hmm. I just knew that others, based on their skin, were treated differently, and I didn't understand it, and it didn't sit right. And then when I uh, and at that time, I was simply trying to survive as a child to get out of the school system, which was horrific. And back then, I didn't know about the residential school system as well. So as I started to exit from... And you need to, you're white? I am. Yes, I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. My skin color is white. And yes. So we'll answer that question as a Yes. And as a, as a result, over time, I, yeah, it didn't sit well enough that I could sit in comfort. It, it just always bugged me. So I was seeking truth for what was the meaning of life. And then I kept coming back to life for looking for answers as well. And I could see that there, that inequality was was not the meaning of life for me. So I can't say that I had a word calling it decolonizing my mind, but it that inquiry into what is sacred, what is right, led me on a journey to see the things that were not right. Mm-hmm. And languaging from different walks, I, I went to India for a while, I followed a multitude of other paths to Israel, to uh, other countries of the world, learning different things. And then I continued to keep coming back to what I considered home, the place I was born and raised. And I've got all my years of experience knowing this land so well that the indigenous way actually makes sense. I understand it better than anything I was taught definitely within yeah. the schools. Uh, so I can't say that the journey is over. I had to continue to learn more of protocols to walk. And and there's a vast number of different protocols based on different tribes and different regions. What it, what an owl means in, in the Saanich Peninsula is different than it means in Malahat than it is different than... So, so I have to take nothing for granted and walk in slowly and listen before I speak. And that's pretty hard for a guy who's privileged to be a white man. And I have to keep checking myself to make sure that I'm not stepping on the toes of. And I do because I'm human and perfection is definitely not a human characteristic. So I will always be decolonizing my mind, I suspect. Thank you so much for the conversation. It was very inspiring. Well, I thank you for the work you are doing and allowing people to move what may be stagnant energy within them. There's been so much pain out there that to give people an opportunity not only to speak, but also to hear other people's experiences out there allows, I think, a different possibility to come from the ashes and the work that you're doing and all people are doing in this realm.
I think is important and it is interconnected with something that is beyond any one person's understanding. So I'm in so much gratitude for the opportunity to actually hopefully bring some form of beauty out into this world as opposed to the ugliness that we as the group experience. Thank you for listening to Unity's Perspective. To hear more perspective at the Fairy Creek series, please check out the other episodes. And now I'd like to hear a little bit from Bill's Jones episode about mental health. Mental health problems with First Nations is exacerbated by um, uh, the racism and prejudice and oppression. So uh, it's a vicious circle that goes round and round until the person dies. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet. Thank you.